Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the CCWSA podcast. I am Rob High here in Oklahoma City. Uh, I've got my co-host with me again, Philip Naiman. Phil, where are you at today out on the road? I'm in the People's Republic of Occupied New York, uh, Albany, actually. You up there visiting your son? Yeah, he graduates med school this week, so we're up here for that. Very good deal. That's awesome. Thank you. We are uh, so honored to have Mr. Eric Gilhouse with us today. Um, Eric's a retired law enforcement officer. Um, also, uh, uh, he, he'll he'll back off from this, but I think he's I think he's among the elite uh, handgun instructors around right now. Um, I met him for the first time. I've known of you for for a good while, but finally got to meet you at at TACCON this year, and. Uh, we obviously became enemies as soon as he started referring to the guys that were doing all the empty hand stuff as the wrestling team. So, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm sorry, Eric, but I spent 52 years of my life doing that. So, <laughs> it, it was bored trying to explain what, Lee Weems, John Hearn, and I were doing with some of the research and looking at the looking at the data out there and digging into that. And you know, most everybody kind of understands the whole high school, you know, ties, right? So you, you the football team, track club, um, chess club, and stuff. And that's all where we were going with that was you had Craig Douglas, Cecil Birch, the whole Shivs Works crew. If if TACCON had any sports teams, it would be those guys as the wrestling, and we were just we were the guys over in the chess club. That's where I just I just fell in love with that. Um, I want to be on the chess club though. <laughs> I don't want to be the monkey in the corner. Hey, here's the new trunk monkey. Bring him out. At, at least he said the chess club, not the AV club. <laughs> oh yeah, we can we can mess up the AV thing all day long. That's what we got Tiffany for attack on. Absolutely. She, she us on that. Yeah, that <laughs> pulled me out of the fire. Um, anyway, um, Eric, why don't you start us off and, and give us a little bit of your background. Tell us where you came from, how you how long you've been involved uh, as a shooter and your development and how we kind of move forward to where we are today. Try to do this without putting anybody to sleep since it's I'm still on my first cup of coffee. Um, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. Didn't didn't grow up shooting, didn't grow up hunting. Uh, Uncle Sam fixed that when I went to basic training. I uh, shot a little competitively a bit when I was on active duty in the Army. Uh, some of the matches in Third Corps, which was a um, big, heavy, armored corps within the Army down in Texas, Oklahoma. Uh, came off active duty, moved back here to go to, go to college, um, ended up in a couple units in the Army Reserve where I was doing some teaching relating to shooting, started shooting competitively, uh, got hired as a cop um, in there and a few years, three years into my law enforcement career, uh, the need for instructors in the department and my competitive shooting plus what I've done in the Army kind of all ran into each other. So probably way too early in my career, I got picked up as an instructor. Uh, managed to go to some decent schools, knew I didn't know what I didn't know. And uh, during a class down at LAPD or very early on, I got introduced to this place called API, American Pistol Institute, and some dude named Jeff Cooper. And I figured I needed to go there. And that really started me on the training path. Um, spent 29 years in law enforcement, worked a variety of things, patrol, community-oriented policing, gang violence suppression, narcotics, Field training, I was a use of force instructor for the vast majority of that time. Um, ultimately promoted and ran a couple different training programs within the department, as well as um, patrol shifts before I retired out. Uh, somewhere in there, I did the academic thing, uh, which is probably where the nerd science TACCON chess club stuff started, was digging into research because I, I couldn't understand why there wasn't good research on what we were doing in the cop world. There is, you just got to get into the academic world and get behind, get behind the wall of college to find it. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the, the stuff that's out there is all focused on law enforcement, not focused on decent, normal human beings. So we end up trying to extrapolate 
some of what this research and that research says about decision making and shooting and stuff along those lines and try to make it apply to the public, uh, to folks carrying concealed, not to work in cops. Um, anyway, I retired in 2019. Along the way, I've been a gun writer. Please don't hold that against me because I'm kind of back to doing it again. Um, started up my company, Cougar Mountain Solutions. Uh, it's a terrain feature in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's why I chose it. Um, I guess there's some other things it apparently means, but I didn't, wasn't thinking about that at the time. Um, focus on handgun and kind of fell into pistol mounted optic stuff, low light and shotgun work. And so along with the thinking side of things, that's kind of how we ended up here. I've been at Gunsight since 2001 as an instructor. Good stuff, brother. <clears throat> tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about Gunsight. That's, that's one of those things that's on my list right now. So the short version is Jeff Cooper had been a Marine Corps officer, both during World War II um, and during the Korean War, not in Korea, but other parts of Asia. Um, he audited the FBI's academy back at Quantico in between those things, in between those uh, fights. Um, ended up getting out of the Marine Corps, getting back out to California, did the college thing, was, a, was actually a writer on cars and auto racing for quite a while. Started looking at the shooting side of things and was looking at competition trying to figure out what's the best way to do this and that was the leather slap matches up at big bear um, that ultimately evolved in the southwest combat pistol league but what cooper did during that era was take the best of what several folks were doing and combine it he didn't create anything per se um he took what jack weaver was doing with two hands on the gun getting the sights up to eye level he took what Eldon Carl, Thel Reed, uh, Ray Chapman were doing and combined all those things into what eventually became known as the modern technique of the pistol. He taught it in Central South America, around the U.S. Ultimately, in 76, he bought the property that's now known as Gunsight Ranch outside of Paulden, Arizona, north of Prescott, and put the school in there, and it's continued to expand. Um, Buzz Mills is the current owner of the school. Buzz bought it in 99. Uh, Jeff Colonel Cooper passed away in 2006 and the school's still there. Um, I imagine there's folks who think that you can't go unless you carry a 1911 and shoot some weird kind of bastardized um, version of the Weaver because far too many wrong versions of that have been put out and taught, but that's not the case. It's a service pistol that'll get you through the week and we see a wide variety of things on that. Um, and for the past now, probably seven, eight years, we've been talking much more about a universal fighting stance that's balanced, that allows you to move than what many people consider a doctrinally, doctrinally correct weaver. That, that's so crazy. Um, that's, we were, we were weaver trained when I first came on and, uh, it, it was so far beyond what the uh, the initial intent was for a weaver stance. Um, I mean, we were like bladed sideways on the thing. I mean, like completely sideways. And it was just horrible. Um, what I was shown for a weaver in the academy I went to in 1989 was very different from what I saw when I went down to a tactics and shooting package of the Los Angeles Police Academy in, in 91. I'm like, wait, hold on. This is not the same thing. And what LAPD showed was very consistent with what I got at Gunsight when I went to 94, that it was not at all bladed. Um, there was a time, I think, we might have been a bit too doctrinal, almost dogmatic about yeah. certain moves rather than the principle of the isometric tension and the push-pull. Um, regardless, we got beyond that. And the school teaches a universal fighting stance that's balanced that allows you to, to deliver force, absorb force, move in any direction and stay in a fight with you any know, weapon. When, uh, when I first took my first combat defensive shooting course, I was really bladed. And my thinking just as an individual was a small, a small frontal target as possible. You know, that made sense to me. Um, and one of the guys there had been overseas a couple of times and, and he was a medic and he goes, well, number one, if you have armor on, that's different if you're wearing armor. And if you're that bladed and you're hit, you're double lunged and there's nothing I can do for you. And I'm like, 
Oh, so you want me this way? <laughs> oh, oh, I'll live. Okay, I'm gonna yeah. take that one then. That was something that made that made that seem so incredibly outrageous to me when when I was learning it. And I wasn't a pistol guy. <clears throat> I grew up hunting, um, but shotgun was was the tool I learned how to use with my granddad when I was seven, um, and was very fortunate. My dad and his brothers, and my grandpa. Um, we enjoyed bird hunting, getting out in the field and doing stuff like that. Um, but that was very straight on. And, uh, I get on the line at the police Academy and they've got this big modified horrible thing. And, and that was the, it, it's so funny. Cause I, I'd, I'd never worn body armor before going into the, to the Academy. And first thing I thought is the very weakest thing I have right here is where I'm going to expose. And mm -hmm. then at the same time, if I take a shot right there, I'm just, I'm out of the fight. I'm done. And I just thought it was so, it, everything about it was, was counterintuitive. It was just not something that was going to work for us. Uh, if, if we're in an actual uh, gunfight, uh, I just thought it was silly and it was, probably three years before they turned, you know, the aircraft carrier enough that, that you had enough guys on, on the uh, training cadre that were like, man, we got to reevaluate that. Um, but even still, they went to just very straight on isosceles and for guys that weren't very athletic, um, counter movements and and getting off the X and and doing explosive things that are going to happen in a real life scenario. They're stuck on the spot. They, they were stuck. Yeah. They were stuck on, 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 on the middle of the X and they could not move. Um, how, how, what kind of, what kind of pushback did you have Eric as, as running a law enforcement training thing? Um, Cause I know our guys, it, it just floors me that that these are guys that are that are trained to be fighters and protectors and defenders and how how weak they were as far as getting their feelings hurt when anybody questioned anything they did um I, I don't know if you ran into the same thing but it, it it was horrible the pushback we got in our own community well, so program-wise versus individually, um, I was fortunate that the sergeant that recruited me and brought me into firearms actually was a big fan of Jeff Cooper. So we had probably about 96, 97, we had undertaken a process to do an internal review of our firearms program. And all the instructors were tasked with going out and finding two or three other agencies seeing what they were doing, seeing what they were having success wise with and, and bringing, writing that up, bringing it back and seeing what we could do. Um, I kind of cheated. I chose Bakersfield, um, Burbank and LAPD. <laughs> I think Clovis might've been in there too, which all had very heavy gun sight influences. Um, and we stayed with that philosophy for many years, but I know probably about 06, 07, we were, we had brought in enough outside instructors who all had ties back to gun sight that we had gotten away from, we'd gotten, let me rephrase it this way, we had gone to a universal fighting stance. And that was the language we'd gotten from Bill Jeans, who had been the operations manager at, at the ranch when I started going down there. Um, and using that and taking away the argument of Weaver versus isosceles, say, look, we're just going to go to a stance that's balanced that you can move from and fight from. Um, as long as you can manage the weapon system, whatever that is, shotgun, carbine, pistol, um, as long as you can do those things, we're fine with it. I think it's and called the Weevophilies. Weevophilies, okay, that'll work. <laughs> so, and then the, since I've left, you know, it's been three and a half years since I retired. Uh, and the, the guys are continuing to adapt in that program. I was back doing some use of force stuff as a student with them a couple of weeks ago. And they're still looking at what all else is out there and incorporate it. And that's fine. And we had talked about that that once it becomes their program, it's up to them to make sure it stays current and relevant. Well, you, you were blessed. Um, I, I've got to study some of the LA stuff 
and and I always felt like they were uh, kind of kind of leading the charge. Um, but it takes it takes so long for stuff from the coasts to make it make its way into the center of America, and and we we fought that battle so hard. Sometimes that's a good thing. No, you're right. On the coast, yeah, right. take a long time to make it to central center of America. And I'll say it takes time for stuff to filter back out because um, I, I don't want to belabor the whole the weaver stance. Um, but I had always wondered why cops were buggering it up. I thought it was like third, fourth, fifth hand, like playing um, telegraph when you were kids. And that was why the foot position was getting more and more turned. It wasn't until I started having conversations with our mutual friend, Brian Eastridge, that the body armor design issue came into it and that there was a lot of blading going on because of gun retention and because of body armor design, and which neither of those things were something I had considered because it hadn't come up in my circles. So, yeah, well, even the gun retention stuff, um, you know, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of if you're going to carry a firearm, you better learn how to defend that thing, whether it's holstered or drawn or whatever. You better know how to keep that thing. The last thing I want to do is get shot with my weapon. Yes. Uh, and the things that we were taught, and I, I brought this up before, it is not a jab at anybody, um, but the Lindell handgun retention stuff. Um, Jim Lindell was... Uh, he had a judo background. He he was a trainer in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. So Casey Mo used his stuff for a long time. He also was the one that that uh, brought in LVNR, lateral vascular neck restraints. A great system um, and and like a magic bullet. You know, for they had more than a million documented uses of of the technique without any significant injury to a suspect or an officer. Well, in that's why it had to, that's why it had to go. You know, yeah. somebody instead of calling it an LVNR, they started calling it a rear naked choke, and oh, those are terrible. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were there were some small differences, um, but the same principle as far as shutting shutting a person down. But um, that handgun retention system was insane, and it was the best thing that was available to us at the time. But man, you're talking about uh, really fine motor skills happening at the height of a stressful situation when somebody's trying to take your most lethal tool on your belt. And, uh, you know, it was like nine steps and it ended with mechanical control. And it's like, the, the guy's trying to take my gun, I'm going to punch him in the throat. Um, yeah. it, it was... It was the best thing that was available at the time. Um, and we were very fortunate that we had a couple of officers that survived a use of force, um, but it was horrible. And we got a lot of blowback in the media and it was, uh, it was kind of our Rodney King that, you know, in, in the Southwest, that's what we got. And, our command just went crazy. You know, why is the stuff you teach ineffective? And I was actually the, the uh, defensive tactics coordinator for the department at the time and told them, I said, listen, you've allowed me just enough time to teach these kids techniques that work against somebody of average size, average strength, and zero ability and even at that if you add an intoxicant on top Ooh. and and lower their their pain threshold uh or all of a sudden the stuff we do doesn't work at all and that use of force was against a guy that was really big and really strong and it looked terrible there's a, a police use of force is never going to look pretty. Um, it's just not. You know, you know fighting is ugly. Um, 
but that really opened the door really wide. Um, I, I've got instructor certifications across the country from almost 30 different departments and, and school training schools. Um, and the best part is, is I'd bring them back to, to my cadre and we would kind of nickel and dime and go, we're going to take that piece. And we just, we stole what worked for us and, and put away, put away the things that didn't. That's just how we handled it. <clears throat> but what, uh, like I said, you you were out with us at uh, TACCON. How long have you been doing TACCON? That that was such an incredible cadre of instructors. It is an amazing conference. So as an instructor, this was the second year I taught okay. and presented there. Um, I, first time I went was in 2015. Um, John Hurd, keep bringing up John. I had really wanted to see John's presentation on who lives, who lives, who wins, and why I can't remember the exact terminology, but um, all the science behind why people not only survive, but prevail. Um, and John wasn't coming out West with it. So I kind of went back to Memphis um, when it was taught at the Memphis Police Academy 2015 to do it. They ended up going to a couple at, down in Little Rock at the Direct Action Resource Center. Um, and then Tom asked me to present last year for the first time. And then again, this year. Um, it kind of dovetailed in with some things that landed in my lap uh, about the time I retired and some stuff I've had a chance to develop program wise as a result. That's such a big deal to, I, to have the liberty to kind of open up and run with it. Um, yep. we, we were very blessed in the defensive tactics portion. Um, you know, there's three, three critical physical skills in in the police academy that we identified and it was you know, shooting driving and and hands-on um and we have always been so forward thinking in the driving um and it took something huge to make a change for us in the empty hand or less lethal um but it's always floored me that We've been so boxed in and stagnant uh, in the firearms realm from from the the agency I worked with. <clears throat> so, kind of going back a little bit here, but are there statistics on how many fatalities there are on someone being shot with their own gun? You know, in the anti-gun movement, we hear this all the time. You don't want to carry a gun. You don't want a gun in your house. You're gonna get shot with your own gun. Are there real statistics out there that say how many home invasions are ended when the invader shoots the homeowner with their own firearm or CCW carrier shot with their own or a police officer shot with their own. I'm going to take a wild guess at this and say no, um, because the problem is we're just only just now getting good data on law enforcement, deadly shootings by law enforcement, fatal shootings. We're not getting, we still don't have good data yet on all the times that law enforcement shoots period. Um, I'm going to guess because, you know, we're making, we're nationally, we've made the move from universal crime reports, UCR, to the national incident, incident-based reporting system, NIBRS. And it's still, you don't have even 75% um, of agencies that have bought into putting in stuff into the UCR and NIBRS. So there's going to, it's going to be a lot of anecdotal stuff. Um, I was not a defensive tactics guy. I, I played judo as a young cop because it was kind of a cultural thing in my organization, but the defensive tactics side of things was not there. So I, anything I have would barely be a wild guess on it numbers wise. Well, yeah. I think because they use it so often, there's probably nothing there. You know, it, it's, it's a great story, right? Oh, you don't want a firearm in your home to protect yourself. It'll just be used against you. You know, it's, it's, yeah wondering what the real numbers are i'm sure they are minuscule the the, the anecdotal data have i have seen and this is the wild guess stuff because i can't i don't recall numbers has largely been in favor of the citizen defender doing the right thing with a firearm um, especially in comparison with with violent felons 
who continue to prey on folks because they're not locked up. Well, but I can't give you exact numbers. I lived in Northern California for a while. I used to run on Cougar Mountain. It was a great place. Um, but you are in the center of the storm. I mean, California is cray-cray, but my friend, you are in the People's Republic of Occupied Northern California. Uh, it It is, you know, I, I did a, for, for Firing Line radio show, I was up at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago. Sacramento is absolutely clean and beautiful. Right around the Capitol, no homeless, no trash, no graffiti. Three and a half miles away, south of the 50, they're all lined up, stacked up like this yep. is order. You're not allowed to come any closer that, to the governor than this. So they don't see anything. The, the lawmakers are like, oh, we don't have a homeless problem. You know, they're kept outside of their city. But up there in the San Francisco Bay Area, I mean, you've got all your retail places closing due to crime. It's it's crazy up there. Not yeah, it's and your DAs are insistent on putting those people right back on the street. Yeah, there was a lot of problem even before COVID. COVID just made it worse. Um, but yeah, Gary and I went out to LA week before Thanksgiving on a <clears throat> on a critical response uh, for CCW Safe. We had a member involved in a in a self defense incident out there and. Uh, I, I was absolutely floored at the homeless and the filth, and it, it was just unbelievable. I I complain about what I've seen around the metro part of, of uh, Oklahoma City. But, oh my goodness! Yeah, son, we uh, we grow free range felons out here. I was so <laughs> so happy to be back home. I really was. Um, another, another deal. And I was so excited that your name popped up on that, Eric is, uh, is, uh, Jacob Paulson and the concealed carry group, um, the guardian nation conference. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, I think you'll enjoy, I think you'll enjoy that, that conference as well. That's coming up in September here in Oklahoma city. Um, but Jacob is building something that's really special too. Um, he's, he's got some super, super guys, but, and as you've seen there, there's a lot of the, the same, same folks coming from TACCON. So. I know I'm doing a low light block. I think Chuck Haggard and I are going to do matching low light block Saturday night. I've pitched a couple other things to Riley and haven't heard back on them, but I, I'm going to guess something involving dots. Just about an optics might be involved in that. Um, you mentioned the critical response out to LA and I don't know the facts or the search of the event, but one of the things that was really helpful for me was some stuff I went through was knowing the science behind how we react to things. And I mentioned, I got a couple projects dropped in my lap right around the time I retired. And one of them was rewriting the student handbook for the pistol classes at Gunsight and was able to take classes I've been through from both force science and uh, the unfortunately no longer in existence California Training Institute um, on human factors and how they apply to uses of force and processing stuff. And so one of the additions to the student handbook was a whole chapter on human factors. Um, you know, the physical effects, the psychological effects that may happen to people during an event so that they understand it so that they are when these things happen to them or in the immediate aftermath, they're not wondering what the heck that was. Um, so we were able to get that in. I also got the pistol mounted optics project for Gunsight dropped on me, and that's morphed into some other things, both teaching dots at TACCON um, and some of the classes that my company does as well. Yeah, that that is, people don't realize the, the type of help they're going to need until they personally are in the middle of that and that storm has already started um it it is it's really the only reason that i jumped so hard to come over to to ccw safe when i when i did um and it's the fact that that we have a hand-picked team we've got uh everybody especially related to our critical response team um and because of you know our, our membership has increased so incredibly fast um that gary and i brought in uh 12 
12 folks last year and got them trained up um, for uh, on-call status for the critical response team. But we've got um, uh, crime scene reconstructionists, shooting reconstructionists, um, firearms experts, and a bunch of other homicide investigators that have worked a lot of these law enforcement shootings. Um, but, you know, there's so many things, you know, Gary and I have both talked about it being involved in about every kind of aspect of a shooting that you can be in from, from being shot at, to, to shooting somebody to, you know, Gary's brother was involved in a shooting. My brother was involved in a shooting. I had, had a spouse who was involved in a shooting. And every one of those things those has- Those are all separate instances. Yeah, they're so- Not, not just a family reunion. <laughs> well, we won't talk about the family reunion, but yes, there were some other instances. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a big deal. To, and, and it's not just, you know, if I'm on the trigger, I'm not the only one that's affected by this incident. You know, there, there are just so many concentric ripples that go out from the middle of that rock landing in the pond that, that we really need to have answers for um and i'm so honored to be a part of being able to come out and and calm somebody's fears um that's that's a big deal to me you know you're saying it that way but one of the things i think we probably don't do a good enough job of talking about as you just said is your crime scene recreation team you know if something were to happen like you know, Eric, he's up there in, in Northern California. I travel quite a bit. Who knows where I'm going to be? But it depends upon the DA as to what kind of a, you know, there's a situation. And sometimes the situation may look black and white. And someone else takes another look at it and says, nope, that one's white. That one's black. These are two different things. And all of a sudden, you've got the full force of a political machine pushing a narrative. And if you are on your own trying to defend this, you are done. How do you do a crime scene recreation? How do you have qualified experts knowing you know, they can trace the bullets, they can trace the patterns, they can link back the videotape if there is any, if you're lucky enough to have videotape. Um, you know, how do you do all that? And if you're, if you have a service, you know, if you think you're doing the right thing and you get some kind of a of a coverage for carrying a concealed if you have an incident insurance or so, something like that and they just cut you a check and say see ya good luck um how do you do that and when do you do it because you may be held like a january 6th person indefinitely you may be held you may not you may have work you may have other obligations where you can't build your own defense so i think that that the fact that you have that team in place is you don't find it anywhere else. And we probably don't do enough talking about how that gets your bacon out of the fire. Well, there's even things that, that we don't, we don't even have, um, you know, we, Gary and I are allowed the freedom to handle things like we would want our family members to be handled. So we had an issue where um, had a member that was involved in an incident that had uh, a family relationship with somebody who had great national recognition, had been a, an artist and, and was well-known all across the country, had been very successful in entertainment. <clears throat> And one of the very first things that we were allowed is to have a marketing team ready to start working the, the aspects that, that could be attacked on, you know, you know, this is so-and-so's husband and, and he's out here all willy-nilly acting like a fool with a gun and we can get in front of that and cut that off and, and spin it the right way, put the truth out there in front of all the bull crap that's gonna come. Or to have a member who is involved in an incident and, and I think you and I have talked about this before, Phil, but 
um, the man starts receiving threats and everybody knows that it happened there at his apartment. And we went ahead and got him out of that area and, and put him up for a couple of weeks and, and, and waited until things calmed down and, and addressed like, like that. You know, there was one of the classes I sat through at TACCON and, uh, you've got a, a gentleman that's involved in an incident and there's nobody sitting on this screen today that wouldn't have responded exactly like he did. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions coming from the audience was, um, who, who cleaned up the, the scene, who cleaned up your house? And he was like, I did. And man, that hurt my heart. Cause it was like that, that you're the last person that should ever be tasked with doing that. You know, it's just, a fundamental piece of what our coverage is, is that we come in and take care of that for you. Um, but we're, we, we have the experience from having lived through these kinds of things that we understand the need for everything that goes into it. Um, and that's a, that's a really big deal. Um, it, and just, well, just well, to jump in, the, Having been an association vice president for an employee association that we had about 300 sworn cops in, I got to see the bills, the legal defense fund bills for our officers that were involved in, in events. Um, and when you start looking at what not only the representation during the during the criminal process, because the investigation into the shooting, regardless of justified or not, is a criminal investigation, but then the potential for civil issues afterwards as well. Um, to to see what those bills are and look at how that would be if that was coming out of somebody's pocket. Um, it, it definitely argues for having a program like CCW safe or other, some of the others out there. Um, if you find that those are the ones that work best for your needs. Uh, I, I maintain too, I have my retiree legal defense fund for law enforcement and I have another, I have insurance as well on top of it. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's just, an absolute necessity. I mean, it's just like, I, I always carry insurance on my car for the what if, um, you know, I don't, uh, was it, was it Lynn that actually came up with the deal? I don't carry a gun to mm -hmm. enforce my, so, my will on others. I, I carry it to keep them from enforcing their will on me or something like that. Impose. I think she uses the word impose, but yeah, it's, Otherwise, I think you've got it right. You know, that's it. That's the only reason. I don't, it is only for the protection of me and mine. Um, and I think some of them, you know, I, I don't know that I could ever walk by the something going on on the streets where I thought somebody was going to be killed if I didn't intercede. Um, and I know those things are crazy rare. Um, you know, I far more prepare for the medical aspect of something that I do for the, the shooting aspect of something. Cause I, I know that I'm, I'm so much more likely to go buy a horrible car wreck on the way home than I am to, to pop into the grocery store into an active shooter scenario. Yes. You know, the odds are stacked up that, that I'm going to need to know medical more than I need to know how to operate a, a handgun. Um, absolutely. If I'm going to operate a handgun and, and be a part of that community. I'm absolutely going to be a part of the, the emergency tac med stuff. I it, even, I could be the one I need to use that on. I mean, that's a big deal or, or uh, you know, family members or whoever else. So, you know, one of the other things you, you brought up there about seeing something happening. Um, I think we need discernment as to when does something need you to be involved as opposed to when are there just two cray crays on the side of the road. And it's like, there's no winner here. There's no loser here. Um, you know, no one's being unfairly taken advantage of. There's not a, you know, we're use your discretion where you interject yourself because you could be in a no win situation where all of a sudden they both turn on you. I mean, how many times have you seen that when you're at a domestic dispute Yes. guys beating the tar out of the woman 
and she's standing there tarless. And as soon as you try and put cuffs on him, she attacks you with a knife from behind. I mean, it, whatever, something like that. It's you see that all the time. And, and I think discernment has got to be your number one defensive use, right? One of the interesting things about TACCON has been the bringing together of the communities. So the, the wrestling club and the shooting team. Um, and Craig Douglas, for example, from ShivWorks, will run an experiential learning lab where it's a very ambiguous scenario and students are put into it not knowing what they're going into, but everybody else gets to watch it and see. Um, I did presentations at TACCON talking about some of the research out there. And it starts out as ready positions and better outcomes, but it goes into a number of things that all impact the decision-making in, in that role. And we just did, John Hernley Weems and I just did a block um, in Georgia over the weekend, a two-day class we called the Cognitive Conclave, which was not so much about aligning sites and pressing the trigger at speed as it was about thinking through these problems, um, thinking through them realistically. But kind of where I'm going with all those ties is that one thing that consistently comes up is getting better information coming in and then having enough reps in scenario-based training. Uh, force on force is best. I'm not saying you have to shoot each other with a non-lethal training ammo, but going up against another thinking human being in a scripted scenario to give you the opportunities to work through some of these things and have a mental map for I am here, I am seeing this, whatever this is, how can I go forward? And we use the phrase muscle memory, right? And I, people like me will go like, no, no, it's, it's this, that, the other thing. It's muscle memory as everybody gets. Um, but if we can give people a pathway that goes first from a game trail to then a hiking path, to then a horseback path, to a single lane road, to a two-lane highway to ultimately an interstate because they've put in enough repetitions over time to lay down that mental map, that mental pathway as to how they get through these various problems. They're going to free up more of their brain to be able to solve the problem at hand. And they're less likely going to be to go down the road of the reptile brain and bad decision-making. So the whole response to adrenaline and i'm just going to overcome based on sheer will is not a workable thing <laughs> uh, the longer we can keep you in the rational brain or keep ourselves in the rational brain the better the decision making is going to be right um what's what, there's a meme you'll see out there or a comment out there you're not going to rise to the occasion you're going to fall to your level of training and i would add experience to that yep right um, you're not suddenly going to get 25% better just because bad things are happening. You're probably going to lose IQ points once those start to happen. Um, we, well, the people who believe it. that are the same people that work on the federal government's budgets. So. <laughs> Oddly heard. enough, the people I'm trying to counter that do come from the federal government. So, yes. You know, there's just so much out there, um, so many, so many aspects of this, but um, you guys have both touched on this, that the mental preparation is so critical into increasing your, your survival rate. Right. Uh, you know, it, the very first time I ever, ever sat and watched a presentation from uh, Matthew Little, was a couple of years ago at the first Guardian Nation conference. And I watched not the shooting portion, but the presentation portion from Matt. And he's he's discussing these things about uh, mental preparation. And you better get right in your mind with this before this ever occurs. Or you're really going to find yourself in a hole, um, and I'm, I'm I'm sure that you've seen it as much as I have, Eric. When you have an officer that is involved in a critical incident, and you've got guys that have really worked at their craft, they've really prepared themselves not just physically and technically, but they've done the mental preparation as well, and the survivability. 
And I'm not talking about the, the surviving the physical assault, the survivability of all the stuff that's going to come at you after the fact is so critical. And, and that's where, that's where that comes from. It's not, you know, the, the mental, the mental reps, the mental preparation, the, the stuff that you were talking about is, uh, it, it, it's the most important piece, I think. <clears throat> the better prepared you are for what might occur, right? It's got to be a reasonable occurrence, right? Not 27 ninjas fast roping out of a 747 at a, at a seven lane overpass. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. Well, have you, have you cleared the closet behind you? It's kind of, you know, it's got a crack in there. Yeah. You yeah. That's where up. the 27 ninjas are stacked up. Um, but the, the more you compare for what's re the realistic, most likely threat you're going to have. And, and a couple three things along those lines, you'll have enough branching capability more likely than not to deal with the other stuff. Um, but understanding what comes afterwards, un understanding what it's going to be like when the first officers roll in on scene and why having a gun in your hand at that point might not be the best idea, right? For everybody's, everybody's welfare. We could talk about the Arvada, Colorado thing, if you guys have it. Yeah. Um, but what's going to happen when you start getting asked questions, know your rights well enough to know, when is the time to talk and when is the time not to and to say, hey, I'll be more than happy to have a lot longer conversation with you when my attorney shows up. Um, having some idea of what's going to come a week down the road, six weeks down the road, six months down the road. Um, and having somebody who can help you get through that process is going to be important. So, well, you know, it's one of the other things that that we do is is that we are also available to post incident. Mm -hmm. um, get with you and and help you work through those things and and guide you in things that could be quite innocent as you're as you're giving a formal statement but could be uh, uh, a trip hazard down the road if it goes to a civil jury because yeah. Those juries are completely different. Criminal criminal versus civil is not anything alike. Uh, so, and the levels of proof, or the level of of um, you need a preponderance well, as opposed to absolute, right? Yeah, proof beyond a reasonable doubt and preponderance of evidence are two very different animals. Yes, um, and you know we know that having been involved in them that that. Uh, the the potential for lawsuit is far great it's it's an automatic almost if you're in law enforcement it and it's not an attack on the officer it's almost always going after the deep pockets of the city and the department and everything else but, oh, but okay that's, that's where they attack you you just brought this one up and i gotta tell you city of lake else actually it's a county of riverside but in the city of Lake Elsinore, it's run by the sheriff's department. Incident happens. We got crazy guy 101 running down the street with a baseball bat beating on things. Rob, do you know the story? I don't. Beating on some, it could have been a random house. Neighbors come out with bats like, who is, who's going on with this guy? They call the police. He's, he's foaming at the mouth kind of thing. The, um, Police, you know, they're so stacked up. The watch commander comes out. And the watch commander is obviously a guy who has a lot of experience. He's not your first off rookie. He comes out there. The guy is not complying. He's got a bat in his hands. His neighbors had had bats. They actually put him in the bushes when they saw the cops because they didn't want to get any trouble for whatever. And uh, he deploys pepper spray. Well, it's Lake Elsinore. It's a little windy out there. And with the distance you have to maintain for your safety with somebody with a bat, and your pepper spray in the wind, it was not, a, and the fact the guy was not exactly a teetotaler, the uh, pepper spray was not effective. And then the guy drops the bat, puts his hands up, makes a move, reaches into the bushes, grabs the other bats, and charges the officer at less than six feet. He fires six shots, and it's like two frontal, two side, two back. Mm -hmm. Ten million dollars to the family because of excessive use of force. Because as the guy was hit, he spun, and it's one, two, three, four, five, six. Yep. 
One, two, three, four, five, six. And those last two shots got the family $10 million excessive use of force. It's ridiculous. And without knowing more about the case, one of the one of the research studies that I've talked about in some recent presentations has to do with are you shooting at what you're seeing or are you shooting at what you saw? Yes. And a lot more often you're shooting at what you saw because by the time it takes you to process that and react to it, 0.25, 0.35 5 seconds, 0.5 seconds, that thing can completely and totally change. And four science years ago showed how fast, quick, how quickly people can turn away from you. But now you're having to try to explain that to folks who unfortunately grew up on Hollywood where any shot to the back is somehow a violation of the rules. Not understanding that that the environment may have changed far faster than somebody can process. Um, is he, is he rendering or is he running to cover too? I mean, those, those other questions happen. Well, and, and you were you had mentioned Bill that there were other people present that that things had gone on, and he was you know other neighbors had come out. Um, is he turning and heading towards other? potential victims i mean there's so many factors that play i I think it was sympathetic i think it's the hits it's the 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 flinch you know of the impacts it it just turns we've seen that we've watched videos where people have have been impacted with bullets and their first thing is up and they always turn away from it whether it's a the reptile brain or they're thinking of what i don't know what causes it they're not they're not around for the after action interview but um you know that happens automatically and so at what point if you've got to use a deadly force if you're an officer at what point do you stop i mean most of the times they're taught well you would know but you know you you take the problem to the ground right uh it's not okay um the danny glover uh lethal weapon thing see you shoot the guy in the leg everybody's nice you know it, that didn't work out well either even in the movie but um if you have to use deadly force, you're using deadly force and you have to use excessive deadly force to make sure it's done. Well, so I, I, I guess it might come down to semantics and I, and I don't mean to run over you, Phil, when I say this, but it's the speed at which we're doing it. Yes. And we need to be able to process changes in the environment. When you look at the numbers, that's like 0.35, 0.45. Um, Los Angeles Police Department SWAT calls historically were shot at 0.5 splits, right? You could be standing there just in your, your utilities. Well, they would be standing there in their utilities and their gun belt, shoot it at 0.5 splits, give or take, right? Then put on body armor, still shoot it at 0.5 splits. Then body armor, gas mask, gloves, helmet, still shoot it at 0.5 splits because they can make decisions at that speed, right? They can, they can react to changes in the environment. I'm not going to say speed is bad, right? But there may be a point where we're pushing, people are pushing speed or we, the community are pushing speed because it's measurable and it's shareable over um, being able to shoot at judgment. And one of the things we were doing with the cognitive conclave was turning targets away from people in the middle of strings. So they would have an un ungiven amount of time and we weren't timing folks to see who was going to be the fastest on a drill like we weren't looking to see who was 1.3 versus 1.5 we were giving people part times hey in this amount of time two and a half seconds you have to accomplish this task right draw from the holster fire a single shot to the black of a b8 bullseye or from a low ready come up and fire four shots to the black on a b8 bullseye but then as the weekend progressed, we were doing some drills where targets were moving behind, from in the open to behind no shoots, or targets were turning away without you knowing when they were going to turn. And it is, are you shooting at a speed or are you handling the gun at a speed that allows you to process that change environment and get off the gas soon enough to avoid firing extra shots, right? And if we can get you to... We, we know at some point everybody's wheels are going to come off and the bad guy could do things yes. at that, you know, two one hundredths of a second before, before you ran out of time. Um, but the more we can give you the tools to process what's going on during the event, the better off everybody's going to be. Um, there's a study by Alexander Jason from 2010, and it was one of the first exposures I had to the good research on use of force 
where they would have people shoot at the presence of a stimulus and shoot for a set period of time. And they would record the number of rounds they fired. And then they would give them shoot when the green light comes on, stop when the, when the green light goes away. Well, then they started making it shoot when the green light comes on, stop shooting when the red light comes on. And in all of that, as it gets more complex, you've got more things the, the shooter, the defender has to do, which is realize the event has changed, understand that the proper response to that is to stop doing X, whatever X is. And then they have to start doing something else because it's not just stop shooting. It's stop the act of shooting and then start not shooting. And all of that takes time in there. And if they've been chasing speed for the sake of speed, rather than working on judgment decision-making, they may fire some more shots down, down range than, than they intended because they couldn't stop themselves soon enough. No, I, I understand that. <clears throat> okay. But if you, if the f- switch is flipped where lethal force has to be used, mm-hmm. right? Well, I guess it's, it's a personal opinion. This is not CCW safe, right? <clears throat> But you get one decision. You can decide when to start a fight or when to stop a fight, but you don't get both. You know, it, and if somebody comes in and they're, they are, you know, I've been hit with bats. This is not a good thing. That might explain a lot, actually. But the, um, the impact of a bat can absolutely kill somebody. So he's coming in with intent to harm. He's been trying to intend to harm. And if the officer who's tried a non- a non-lethal and that doesn't work and he has to switch to guns um if that decision has been made where he's in front of him with a gun or with a bat and he fires and the guy turns you know if he's still on his feet um i I think that threat is still present especially when he's just turning from an impact uh if he's collapsed on the ground and the guy empties a mag okay we're dealing with something else there but if the the guy is on his feet still um i i if I was on the jury, I'd say, look, that guy's still a threat. And number one, don't charge police officers with baseball bats. You know, don't be a dirt bag. And most, most problems go away most. Um, but uh, you know, to, to say that, that the criminal family, the criminals family, and I say criminals because the guy had a long history deserves $10 million because somebody attacked a police officer in the line of duty and then that officer's careers in in jeopardy and it just they cause problems and they get paid for those problems and that just drives me i can't say insane they'll take away my ccw but that 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 gives me a problem accepting that it's very frustrating however even coming from a world where that was that was a very real concern and looking at it, when you look at it from a cop side or a decent normal human being side, there's an obligation to to stop using force when the threat goes away. Now you may have to stop. That doesn't mean you don't get you don't get to stop again, start again. Sorry, I, 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 mean, I, I know what I'm saying is in that yeah. in that situation, yeah. it seemed to me that that was not an unreasonable use for like i said he the guy was not on the ground he was still on his feet that's that's a whole different thing uh, anyway but that's that's what happened that's what we're up against and that's why you need to have the recreating shooting teams right um because you're gonna you're not gonna get me on the jury i'm never gonna be on a jury they're not gonna let me on there but you're gonna get mrs beasley and you're gonna get a couple of teachers and somebody who works at the dmv and they're gonna see things all differently now it's I don't disagree. The, as you explained it, it sounded reasonable, but I also know that it's going to, that, that reasonable is going to have to be something that, that you're going to need to explain to the jury because they're not going to have the background to understand it. Exactly. That's why you need CCW safe. Give, give our, uh, give our, our listeners a, uh, a means to, get to your webpage or training or any of the stuff that you have involved. So. <clears throat> so Eric Gellhouse, um, like the company is Cougar Mountain Solutions. You can find me on easiest right now is find me on Facebook or Instagram. Th- those two pages work Cougar, either Cougar Mountain Solutions or Cougar underscore Mountain underscore Solutions. 
Um, I have a link tree thing that, that will give you the web links to my YouTube channel, to articles I've written, other things. The website is cougarmountainsolutions.com. It's, it's a work in progress. Uh, we pulled down the old one and we're currently redoing it. So you'll get the under construction um, banner when you get to the page right now, but that's what it is, is cougarmountainsolutions.com. Um, like you said, Rob, I'm teaching at the Guardian Conference in September. I'll be doing the Thunderstick Summit, which is shotgun focused in, in October 20th, 21st, 22nd in Las Vegas this fall. Um, I'm teaching at Gunsight um, a fair amount in the fall as well. Uh, in the very short term, and I don't know when this is going to air, but I'm doing a pistol mounted optics instructor class for both law enforcement and decent normal human beings who've been through Tom Gibbons advanced instructor class. We're doing that in Dallas, uh, June 9th, 10th, and 11th. Uh, you can find the information on either the Facebook or Instagram pages. Um, that's being hosted by Hits Down at the Dallas Pistol Club. Um, that's kind of, and I, I'm open. I've got plenty of dates in the fall. Um, I, I like doing low light. I like doing shotgun. I like doing pistol mounted optic stuff. I just kind of stumbled into that one. So any of those, I'd uh, love to talk, to talk to folks about doing. I am going to reach out to you later then. We'll go one-on-one. -on -one. I'd like to to maybe bring you out to uh, 5-0 Farms, get you out, out to our place and see what we can put together for you. I'd, I'd love to see you. Um, Phil, you got any takeaways today, brother? No, I'm just making sure I get him on Instagram here. Start following him. <laughs> yeah, it's good stuff. Be I'd... careful when you start typing in Cougar on Instagram, apparently. I know, I know. <clears throat> I'm really disappointed because I was excited about your website until I found out it's just about guns. So. <laughs> Not trading. <laughs> <That's> about... <laughs> well, thank you so much for hopping on with us today, Eric. I appreciate you so much, brother. I am looking forward to seeing you out here in September. Um, we would uh, like to thank everybody for, for tuning in again. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always reach me direct at Rob, R-O-B, at ccwsafe.com. And uh, we will look forward to seeing you all next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you.